Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everyone for joining us and sharing your evening with us. I want to thank Ken Quiet Hawk for our intro. He and his wife have an amazing website called nativestorytellers.com and if you've never listened to any of the native stories you, you're, you deserve it and it's a treat because it's a way that they preserve their history, their mythology, their traditions in stories that were told generation after generation after generation without textbooks. And in many ways, they have greater validity than some of the things our textbooks are saying to our children today. So check it out when you get a chance. Mark has an amazing show tonight. He has one of my favorite authors on. And if you're ready to be educated, entertained, and enlightened all in the same breath, um, sit back and enjoy. I, I actually have paper and pencil out because whenever Gary Wayne is on, I take notes. So, Mark, it's all yours. How are you doing, Barbara? Doing well. Good. I was, I was uh, told last night that we're responsible for someone having insomnia on Monday and Tuesday nights. And it's people like my good buddy Rachel who have uh, made the CDC declare night night a public health nuisance. <laughs> um, and and uh, I wanted to let the listeners know that uh, we will be hosting Andrew Collins tomorrow from 2 to 4 Eastern Time on his much-anticipated, co-authored uh, Denisovan Origins, Denisovans, however he pronounces it. We, we still haven't gotten <laughs> that one right, have we? Yeah, Denise is Okay, just, just, just tune in. It, it's going to be an excellent discussion. Just uh, you know, don't mind us. We, uh, you know, we are mispronouncing everything. But okay, so yeah, uh, uh, you, know, you just heard uh, Gary Wayne is returning. Yeah, he's the author of the authoritative tracing of the 
insidious uh, plots to corrupt humanity by the Nephilim and their descendants in his The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. If you want to learn more about Gary and how to get his book, his website is genesis6conspiracy.com, and that's Genesis, the number six, conspiracy.com. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? Doing well and uh, so happy to be back with you and very much looking forward to the conversation tonight. Oh, yeah. I think we have a a variety of topics tonight that kind of mixes – like Halloweenish kind of topics in with the Bible, and uh, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting show. It's, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to your analysis of some of these passages and you know, your observations of uh, the state of corruption from the Nephilim. Ho- hopefully it's becoming less and less. Um, you know, we'll find out. Um, it, it, Gary, if uh, we believe how the media portray people of faith, the uh, you know, population would have the impression that we are not attending church, we're weak, radicals, wackos, uh, even though Christianity is rotting from within, um, but Barbara's diligent, diligently built up a large audience who wants a connection to God and are looking for spiritual fulfillment. Um, you have a large following, and you know, the majority and I give you uh, you know, a lot of uh, very supportive uh, comments on, on your uh, uh, Facebook page uh, and you, your shows w- with us are some of the most listened to ones. Um, is there a greater interest in spirituality than the media portray? Yeah, I think there is. And it may not be as in the traditional sense as what you know the average Christian might think about, and there's a lot of sort of dissatisfaction in the Christian community with the organized churches that they're not giving the people some of the things that they're looking for, which is you know a void that I think you know they need to have a look at. But you know outside the Christian community, there's a, a huge group of people uh, who may not be part of an organized religion, but they they'll classify themselves as spiritual. And so they're not totally sort of inside that loop of secular humanism and, and, and science's answers because that has a lot of sort of holes that are, are, are dry as you keep digging. They, they start to run out of answers and they haven't quite figured things all out. So you've got people looking for the larger answers. So it's a matter of where they're going to land with that and but typically we're not seeing that sort of leadership from any single sort of religion or direction that's sort of captivating people uh, and answering the questions that they're asking. So I think that's uh, an opportunity, and I think that's also a big risk. So it depends on, you know, 
what and who is going to step into that void with that leadership role and to begin filling that void and answering the questions that the people are asking because none of the areas that they're seemingly going to in, in that sort of larger context is filling that void. So although I think when the media talks about uh, there, there being uh, less religious people there. I think they're talking about it in a sort of very narrow, sort of skewed way. And, they're, and I think they're just talking about um, people declaring themselves from a Christian denominational um, uh, group is, I think, down uh, in, in the polling on that. But it doesn't sort of take into the people who aren't part of those denominations and outside Christianity in a larger sort of spiritual sense. And they're all looking for the answers. And that's why things like new age and uh, Eastern religions and other things are, are becoming more popular because they're hoping to find the answers there where they haven't found them wherever that they've looked for those answers before. And that's one of the areas where I've been successful with my audience is, is I, I can provide a lot of the answers, not all the answers. I mean, nobody can, um, but a lot of answers that have been nagging them and it starts to, it starts to connect the dots for people and they start to understand things. And for what's beneficial for me, that sort of tends them to revigorate themselves, to dig into scripture for themselves, to uh, uh, substantiate what I'm saying and, and continue with that research. And I also, with the way I approach my research is that I try and recognize other beliefs and look for those common denominators that both areas are, are talking about so that if people wanted to take a look uh, at the Christian perspective based on what might be in Gnosticism or might, might want to be in the Egyptian religion or Hinduism, uh, they'll see some common denominators there. And I'm not, I'm not preaching a global Christian church that's uh, diluted with everybody else. I'm just saying that there are so many things in prehistory and things that have similar sort of pillars and paths. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. And, and I think in the Genesis uh, 6 conspiracy, you, you are just presenting you know, documentation from various uh, Ancient sacred texts from you know the earliest writings, and you, know, you just present the information there. There, there you know, here quotes you know uh, from uh, in the New Testament, Old Testament, uh, the Quran, just uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, you, you know, you have a little bit of everything. It, it, in there, it's uh, uh, an appealing book because you um, are not, you're not really uh, not put, putting any one faith down. You're just looking at uh, many of the commonalities, and, and, and then you do work in. Uh, you know where different groups are infiltrating it to cha- change it from within, but uh, you know, when you are covering uh, r- religions, you know, you're very balanced with it. Well, I think if you're going to uh, utilize uh, information from organizations or 
people's history and or myths and or le mm -hmm. legends and or their religions, one should be at least respectful in terms of how they handle that quote or that reference right. so that um, you're not, you know, misusing. I mean, one of the things as a Christian that I dislike is when people misquote or manipulate what the Bible says. So if that's the way I feel about the Bible, then I ought to take the same type of care to try not to misrepresent uh, what other scriptures have written and, and uh, what other histories have written and other legends and things, and just sort of try and compare that to what the Bible says and denote the differences. And what I, you know, what, what I found in my research is that, as I, I was talking about these common paths and pillars and history, is that there's this common history and seemingly this common destiny. They have a different lens that all of that is, uh, perceived through. One's a monotheist lens for simplicity's sakes, and the other one's a polytheist lens, but they're telling about the same history and prehistory and the same sort of ide ideologies and beliefs, what is going to happen in the future. And so I try and make those comparatives, but I always me measure everything against uh, what's in the Bible and try, and, and it's, I have a strong Christian belief, and see how that matches up. And and so in the book, I present a lot of information, but you're getting clean information from these other sources. I'll, I'll, I'll do yep. some editorializing throughout the book here and there, and I, I have a bias in the book, but I try and present their information and let them speak for themselves. Yeah, right. And you, know, you, you do achieve that respectfulness, but, you know, one of... Now, the topics where you know, you uh, or uh, do 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 not uh, uh, portray such uh, respectfulness is when you get to <clears throat> you know, the uh, Masons. You know, uh, that's kind of a just really fascinating uh, subject. And there's a number of ways we could get get into that subject, and you know, we we have a, a number of guests who have presented their uh, research on uh, the, the Templars and Masons, and you know. I do like that uh, medieval history, and, and it's really cherish that experience of seeing the Book of Kells. Um, I even started last week's show with a you know, little discussion about the Canterbury Tales, and saw Charlemagne's uh, coronation chair at the Aachen Cathedral. Um, yeah, you know, the Templars seem seem to know something that we don't know and their information is based on them being stationed in Jerusalem for decades if not a century or more uh, isn't preserving the truth about uh, Jesus a good thing like the Talpiot tomb uh, it just seems like 
that's a good thing. But you know, where do do we cross over from like the uh, warrior monk concept to the, the nefarious secret societies? And you know, you also say well, you know the secret societies are uh, want us want to return us to uh, you know like the Garden of Eden. It that seems like it could be a good uh, good thing. Uh, how, how do we interpret all this? It, it, uh, Information about a over a thousand year old secret society. It, it's just kind of confusing with all the information that's out there about the Templars and Masons. Yeah, it certainly is. And they, they also like to make that sort of uh, duplicity in terms of or dichotomy in terms of uh, that's a good word. The to outer use. organization and the inner organization. Uh, so it's it's also partly what they're trying to do. So I'm just going to back up a couple of steps and go okay. forward so that I can keep uh, everybody uh, following me here. And I do come down fairly hard on the uh, secret societies and, and their agenda. And the Templars are a significant part of this whole organizational structure and history of the secret societies. And I, I call them snake brotherhoods and societies in my book. And um, a lot of people might look at that as a bit derogative. And my connotation would certainly be derogative as I understand snake. But from their perspective, the snake is the source of wisdom. It's the symbol of wisdom in antiquity. And the gods that they worship at, in, at their pantheon are the seraphim angels, which are the fiery serpent angels that provided the illicit knowledge that's talked about in the Book of Enoch or by the gods around the world, whether it's a Sumerian religion or whatever. So uh, there's kind of like a double entendre for that in terms of how a Christian might perceive snake and how the polytheist religions might perceive the snake. Two totally different views of uh, mm-hmm. one being good, one being evil. And so, uh, and it's the agenda that is a part of this dichotomy of the secret societies that. Um, is sort of the worrisome part from the Christian perspective. So you have on the outside of a secret society at the lower levels, you have all of these good works that they do. Um, and it's right. uh, you know, societies of brotherhood and charities and this and that. But as you, but that's more of a front for uh, what's behind the curtain. And what's behind the curtain are the adepts. And the adepts are the ones that are the ones that are calling the shots and doing things in secrecy that everybody's concerned about. So again, it's important to understand uh, how the hierarchy and the organizational structure is there. Uh, and, and until you are a third degree York Rite or 33rd degree Scottish Rite Mason, you're not declared an adept and you don't know the true secrets. You don't understand the true history, the true metaphors, the allegories, and you're not told the significant uh, agenda and uh, secrets until you uh, are an adept that are beyond um, what uh, they will say will change most people's preconceived uh, thoughts. So as we talk about that, then understand that these 
secret societies, you know, people might know them today as the Freemasons and the Illuminati and um, organizations like the Rosicrucians. And you would have, you know, several different night orders, both within the Catholic Church, outside the Catholic Church. And there's just this myriad of secret societies that is this part of this all over, overall tangled web of organizational structures that actually have a hierarchy that goes to the Rosicrucians. And so the Rosicrucians are the first created group uh, in preparation for what is likely to happen to the Templars. And they're created in 1188 at the cutting of the Elms, which is uh, an occult or polytheist um, ceremony because they believe the Templars have lost their way and they've become too greedy and more concerned with banking. And they've just lost Jerusalem in, in 1187. So they split away, which is the inner core, which was that adept level of the original Knights Templar. And after the fall of the Templars, you're going to have these other organizations that are set up. And the major ones that are going to be set up are the Freemasons in Scotland by the Sinclairs, which uh, Henry Sinclair was a battle partner to Hugh de Payon, who was one of the main founding members of the uh, Knights Templar. And I'll circle back on that in a second. Uh, you have um, the Rosicrucians that we talked about, and they also are going to help to set up the Sarkani Rond or the Ordo Draconis to put their uh, bloodlines and kings back on the thrones in the early 1400s. That's the, the first sort of visible aspect of what they, what the Rosicrucians are going to do as being that intersection of secret societies between the pure bloods and the lower secret societies, with the upper half being all pure blood. And or the bloodlines of the Nephilim or the bloodlines that go back to the Seraphim Watchers. And so you also have uh, the Illuminati and you have uh, the Rothschilds who set up the banking arm outside the church. You have the Jesuits being set up inside the Catholic Church in the 1500s to replace them as what they would call the New Templars. And you also have the... Uh, Royal Society, and uh, which is also called the Invisible College inside the craft, which is going to take care of education and science uh, outside the church and still does today, and as well as what the Jesuits are going to look after, uh, science and teaching and banking inside the Roman church when they're set up, and also going to take over the banking inside the church, which is all going to consolidate into Switzerland over time, but that's a different rabbit hole. So, just laying that down, now we have this organization that is going to be put together um, that are going to meet with uh, De Bullion is going to meet, who is uh, Godfrey De Bullion, one of the main founders of the Knights Templar. He's going to meet with the Calabrian monks at a, a, a Pythagorean mystery school uh, just before he goes over to Jerusalem. And what he's getting is the information to whatever they're going to be looking for in Jerusalem. And they're going to start off with uh, several, a select few members of people are going to be in this new organization uh, that is going to be set up. Uh, and it's going to include Hugh de Payon and people like Anjou. Um, and there's going to be a couple Cistercian or Gnostic uh monks that are part of it, and the Cistercians are the Benedictines, which is connected to the Calabrian monks that I just talked about a couple minutes ago that are going to be these founding members. And so they're there looking for things in particular that is of interest to their bloodlines and their religion, which isn't Christian or which isn't a Christian religion. So they're going to be setting up 
uh, with this organizational structure that I talked about with the Freemasons, and you're going to have this lower level of order, and then at the top, you're going to have the adept order of uh, purebloods who are offspring of kings. And so like Anjou, uh, who creates the Plantagenet offspring, offshoot families, uh, and de Bouillon and de Payon are all bloodline sons of kings out of the Lorraine region. And St. Clair, or St. Clair comes from St. Clair, which is the name of the treaty of 911-912, where the Normans, uh, or the Norse, expropriate Normandy from France, and that's the name of the treaty. And that's the Rollo family, and they take their bloodlines back to the Norse gods, and they change their name to St. Clair in honor of, of that treaty, which gets transliterated into St. Clair's, which are the founders of the of the Freemasons and just after uh, the, the Templars are are broken up. So you have that same organizational structure there that is going to be the same organizational structure for the secret societies below it. But now what they're looking for is not necessarily the proof of Jesus, but what they're looking for, and they're called the keepers of the message, the keepers of the secret, and that's why it's the knight order, even though it's all royal bloodlines. De Bouillon, De Payon, Anjou, and most of the other members, and even the two Cistercian monks, because they're part of the monastic life, they're going to be uh, lower-level uh, siblings of royal bloodlines as well that are in the churches. So they're all royal bloodlines that are making up the order. And they're looking for uh, things like the Ark of the Covenant, gold treasure, uh, and they're going to discover two other things. One they're looking for, and and uh, Noah's there, and the other one I think they're hoping is there. Uh, but two things they're going to break, bring back. Because one is is this knowledge of building, which uh, when the Templars come back, they set off this huge renaissance and revigoration, uh, invigoration of architecture from the sort of the Gothic uh, Romanesque style, which developed out of the old Romanesque, which, you know, didn't really have any light going into the temples because they, they couldn't put big windows in there uh, because the weight would, uh, would crush it after a certain size. So this Gothic architecture has these flying vaults that allow for these huge stained glass windows and you know, they're, they're a wonder even to look at today. And this is part of the knowledge that they bring back with them. But they're also looking for the genealogies that part of their religious nature he, uh, hid there uh, and safeguarded uh, at the time when Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And at that point in time, it's the Essene sect of the religious uh, Orthodox orthodoxy of religion that has control. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have, have, have lead away. And so you have the Essenes, and the Essenes are the religion that takes their religion back to Heliopolis as polytheists, that they believe that the monotheist religion has gone rogue, and that they are practicing the true religion of Moses. That's what they believe, not what I believe. But these are the people that are known as the princes of, the, of Jerusalem that are also part of this with the genealogies. And this is who de Bouillon, de Payon, Anjou, and the others take their bloodlines back to, through the Merovingians, back to uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And these are the genealogies that they're looking for that they say that they found. 
and this is the secret that they're keeping and will bring out in the end time, which will bring down Christianity as we know it, because as the Bible says, if the resurrection, you know, didn't happen, that's the single thing that Christianity stands on. So if they can bring that down, they can restructure Christianity for the new Babylon, which is the goal that is set out within the Templar uh, constitution um, that's uh, recorded by Master Wanselin, which uh, if people want more information on that, get a hold of me, I can send it to you, that they're going to, they, they are trying to, within the church, which is their bigger agenda, once they get back to Europe, is to create the new Babylon, which has one world government and one universal religion, and it's this religion of Egypt and of Gnosticism, which is the religion of the secret societies. Okay. So, since we're talking about Egypt, some some of these uh, engineers, um, you know, we probably need to introduce uh, this character uh, Hermes from. You know, the Bible, ancient Egypt, you know, the Quran. Um, you know, and um, Ahmed Osman was on with us and he gave us uh, some of the background of uh, Hermes, who would uh, later become identified as Hermes Trismegistus. Um, who, who was who is this character that just keeps showing up in antiquity? That was uh, such a, a skillful builder. Is he he related to uh, Hiram Abiff? It, it just it seems like there's like some. some some kind of like crossover uh, of this character. What, what's help, help straighten this out? It, it, it just seems like there's so much information uh, about the, the, this early architect. I, I just don't know what to make of him. It's a, a very very good question and point because the Trismegistus talks about uh, threefold Hermes. And what they're right. talking about with that is um, what most people conclude is the conflating of three different individuals into sort of one uh, ar archetypical Hermes that uh, represents uh, a bank of knowledge and uh, advanced knowledge and a belief system. And so that's why Hermes is so such an important figure, not only in Egyptian uh, religion, but also in ancient Greece and uh, also in um, the Gnostic religions, which is sort of that cosmology of all of these ancient pantheons back into a single pantheon as they bring in all of the other different polytheist religions back into their, um, into their cosmology. And so 
once you understand that they're talking about three, then it's just sort of which three and when are, are they talking about? And there's right. kind of two different views on that. But the most common one is that before the flood, you have uh, a wisdom God that is providing knowledge. And so Thoth would be uh, one of those gods in Egypt. And okay. uh, Thoth is, is, you know, was, is one of those watcher gods. And so this would be equivalent to like a Prometheus type god in the Greek religion or any of the gods that are providing knowledge uh, to humans uh, before the flood in the, in the golden age. And then you have a next one that is going to be either an offspring of, in most accounts, an offspring of the gods and a female that's going to create a priest order or just a human who's going to be a priest. Uh, but they're talking about the same individual in the, in the different religions. And so um, this typically gets to be the second uh, Hermes. And this Hermes is, this, again, the same as Mercury, um, as uh, Idris in the Quran, uh, as in mm -hmm. uh, Taut in, uh, in the Middle East, and or Enoch of the Bible and of, of, of First Enoch. Um, and this is the one who is talked about in the secret societies and Masonic history as receiving the knowledge that Adam receives in Eden and developing that knowledge uh, by his father Cain, who was taught by Adam after Adam, you know, when Adam is born and they're outside of Eden, and then he kills Abel and he gets ostracized, but he goes to Nod and he finds a wife and he has uh, Enoch as his first son. So this information is being downloaded. And by the sixth generation, when the giants are created, this is also when the knowledge of uh, the fallen angels is going to hook up with Enoch. And so that's the second individual. And I was just spending a little bit more time on Enoch because this is where it sort of crosses past with Christianity. The thing is, is there are two Enochs in the Bible. Uh, one is the son of Cain that I just mentioned. And the other one is from the Seth line, um, who is um, not the same individual that the uh, secret societies are talking about. So I call one uh, the good Enoch and one the evil Enoch. And, uh, but it's about this knowledge that Enoch does and how it's used to create the mystical religion, which is the Enochian mysticism that the Essenes believe uh, is the religion of Heliopolis that crosses the flood, the same religion. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second. That, and I'm just sort of connecting the dots with that. The, and they have, they hold, the Essenes hold Enoch as, you know, their greatest patriarch. And the Book of Jubilees that talks a whole bunch about Enoch as one of their greatest sort of pieces of scripture. So um, all of this, you know, is, is, is always connected if you dig deep enough. And then after the flood, there's knowledge that is developed by Enoch that is put in 36,525 books stacked in nine vaults and buried under the pyramids, according to um, the, the Masonic history is found by a fellow called Harmines, which is Hermes after the flood. And he brings that knowledge back to Nimrod, who uses that knowledge to build the uh, Tower of Babel and the City of Babel, 
And this knowledge is so great that God is going to disperse uh, and confuse the languages. And so this is that knowledge again that is going to get passed down through uh, the Dionysian builders, the Pythagorean mystery schools, down into Tyr, who accepts this knowledge and then passes on to King Solomon to build the first temple, and the knowledge that the uh, Masons are going to go uh, and excavate for underneath Jerusalem along, along with the genealogies and the other treasures that they believe are there, and which is, uh, again, believed to be that uh, dynamic Gothic technology for architecture that they bring back to Europe. So anyways, connecting that, that's generally how the three are laid out, but some believe it's either a god or Idris or uh, Enoch or whichever name you want to use for him in, in the different transliterations of, of the same individual uh, for this bank of knowledge and starting of the original religion and or uh, with Hermes again after the flood and then another Hermes that comes at least a thousand years later and is more akin to developing the alchemy aspect of the seven sciences uh, while in Egypt. Okay, and isn't the, this uh, Hiram Hermes person also uh, memorialized at the Roslyn Chapel? Oh, absolutely. It's a significant ritual within the secret societies and okay. is also – uh, part of what's mem memorialized in Roslyn because Roslyn is built by the St. Clair family, right? The founders okay. of Freemasonry, the St. Clairs that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. uh, as a scaled-down model of the original temple. Okay, yeah, this is, you know, it is really interesting. I, it, 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 when we've had so, several guests on, you know, they've presented this information it, it uh it, it can be confusing with uh so you know you know we are working with a foreign language and um but where the hebrew language uh, it, uh omits vowels there's like hermes and hiram uh are kind of like spelled the same, and it 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 it, it, it creates confusion there. It, it, it it's very interesting to have it, um, have someone like you straighten that out, and how this person evolved over time. And you know, you do mention that he, uh, Hermes is also appears in the Quran as well and so there there's you know another uh, appearance yeah, in the he Quran makes. As, as Idris. yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, another appearance he makes in a uh sacred text from uh, uh what 500 AD so it, it, it's it's a fascinating subject, but uh, so what? Um, 
you know, that it, the he's a master of these seven sacred sciences. Um, how well, and not and not just a master, but developed into what they call the absolute. And that is the manifestation of all of the sciences working together and governed by philosophy, um, so that we don't just so that they don't destroy themselves in the face of the earth with the technology. Um, but the technology that comes out of that, uh, they say, is so powerful it would just destroy the earth instantaneously. That's what they say. I don't have anything to substantiate that, but that's what they say. That knowledge, when put all together, uh, has the power to do. Okay. Yeah, this is just you know really fascinating information. Get these legendary buildings, you know, beautifully proportioned uh, that still survive uh, today. But you know, we're also dealing with a uh, totally different mindsets um, 3,000 years later. And you, know, you do talk about the, the today's Masons are wanting to return us to the Garden of Eden. Where? How does that? Uh, uh, page three forty-two. You talk about restoring humankind to the first estate, the spurious Garden of Eden, through a spurious Redeemer. Uh, okay, so where where do we go from building these? Uh, Buildings that still inspire us today to a group of people that it wants to take us back to this innocent time, but there's a uh, underlying aspect of evil. How do we get to that point? Yeah, first of all, the uh, the knowledge that is used for the buildings, uh, and they are, uh, you know, some of the ancient ones, the Gothic cathedrals, some of the architecture that we even do today is very, very, as you say, inspiring. But what's the inspiration for? It's a religious building that they're building with a religious belief system. You know, they are uh, taciturn stories in stone, particularly the the ancient ones. And that's why you see on a lot of these buildings uh, things that are very unchristian. So in the Gothic cathedrals, you would have things like um, gargoyles and, uh, you know, the, the seven sacred sciences being portrayed and the Black Madonna and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. It's not to honor uh, monotheism and Christianity. Uh, it's to honor their pantheon of gods. And so, again, it's a completely different sort of belief system. Even though they're building 
the buildings for the Christian church, for the Roman church. Um, and that's part of being that sort of secret society because they had the knowledge uh, all the way through, beginning with the Manichaeans who mold into the, the builder guild uh, of, of the Roman Empire and uh, the Catholic Church, when they came to power in 300, needed them to uh, build the churches and continued to, to need them right through the Middle Ages. And, and so this, uh, th- these buildings are not Christian. They are polytheist shrines to honor their pantheon of gods. And, so, and, and again, they're free to, to do uh, as they choose, and they were also persecuted by the Catholic Church, so they had to remain hidden otherwise the church would have persecuted them from the face of the earth if they you know had gotten gotten their way so you can see why they would go underground and into secret societies in 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 the west so again i go back to what we talked about earlier as we link this into why this is a concern in terms of where they want to go just as they say they want to bring it back to a a garden of Eden, what they believe that is and what Christians believe are two different things. They are in, you know, upside down, poles apart, uh, opposites. And so the Messiah that they are going to use to bring this about is the Messiah that they want to present as the offspring of these bloodlines and these genealogies um, uh, at are grafted into those genealogies that they got out of Jerusalem from Mary Magdalene and Jesus, because they believe Jesus did not die on the cross, uh, was a was a, an extraordinary prophet, but not the Son of God, not deity status, not the Word of God who became flesh and went back to him. So they have a different view again as to who Jesus was and where he fits in, just as uh, Jesus was a... Uh, a blonde hair, blue-eyed prophet in the Nazi Ariosophy religion, which is sort of a rogue offshoot of Theosophy, which is created by Gnosticism, which is that religion of the secret societies and the Rosicrucians that go back, goes back into prehistory. So what they're trying to bring about is, is this, this new Eden, which is their new age. It's that golden age is the allegory of Eden, because everything's done in an interpretive format in the mystical religions, and you need to understand what that was. And this was an age where the gods lived with humankind and presented them the knowledge. And the allegory comes from Eden because that's when Satan convinces the Nakash, which is the serpent, to, and Satan is also a serpent and a dragon or a seraphim angel, as well as cherubim. That's a different rabbit hole, but understand the the allegory that's going on here to any coaches than the cash or avatars in the cash to deceive Eve to eat from the tree of gnosis or the tree of good and evil again they call it the tree of gnosis the tree of knowledge in the bible it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it is at this point when eve eats of it and then convinces adam that they can now distinguish evil and good and it has an effect on them, and they're convinced to do it to become like God. And again, in the Gnostic religion, there's two pillars to being God. One is immortality, and the other one is knowledge with the discipline to control that knowledge, which comes out of the sciences and philosophy, which governs the knowledge, which is why you have the philosophies as part of the liberal arts. It's an extension out of those sciences that's built into the original religion. 
And so this is the Eden that they want to return it to, is they want to return it to a time of the gods or the fallen angels that are visible and participating and living on Earth, where you have all of this rampant knowledge being um, given to humankind, but ultimately that leads to the flood and an apocalypse. And we get a connection of that coming back in the Bible, what they're talking about in terms of this new age, this new Eden in Revelation 12, where at the midpoint of the last seven years, you have all of the angels, including Satan, being cast down from heaven to be along in the earth. And this is the Eden that they're trying to create because they want a rendezvous with destiny to have a showdown with what they would call the oppressive evil God of the Bible, who I obviously don't think is, um, but that's how they view him so that they can gain their freedom and live in a world away from God, without God's oversight, without God's rules on their own, just as it's talked about in Isaiah 14, 12, where Satan wants to set up his own throne and be like God. And again, Antichrist in um, Daniel is is going to uh, use basically those same words. He wants to have his throne reach into heaven like Satan tried to do in, in Isaiah 14 in prehistory. And this is what they're going to try and do in the end time. And this is that new age, but that new age is not for mundane humans. It's only for the bloodlines of the select few that take their genealogies back to the giants, the Nephilim, who are the offspring of the gods, the fallen angels out of prehistory, and uh, are ones who represent the, the power and the royal bloodlines even, even to this day. And so this Magianic figure that is going to come along to do that is going to have the bloodlines and the genealogies to prove it, I think false, but they believe they have those genealogies that are accurate, that are going to trace those genealogies back to provide the pedigree and the credibility for who Antichrist is, that they that the bloodlines of Jesus and Mary Magdalene that uh, produces the third son called Josephes that is taken to Glastonbury by Joseph of Arimathea and marries into the Celtic kingships that the King Arthur tales are talked about and mm-hmm. crosses over to the Merovingian bloodline that we talked about earlier through uh, 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 to uh, Aragon who marries uh, Aminabad who is a king of the Merovingians. That's where that that uh, scioning of that bloodline crosses and that's the bloodlines of the Nephilim. So you have this ennobled bloodline that is amongst those Knights Templars and the pure bloodlines of the secret societies that are at the 50% highest level of the Rosicrucians and higher. So you'd go up, you know, by, beyond that, you would have the account of uh, the committee of 300 council of 33, the 13 families and even smaller groups uh, above that. Cause it's like circles within circles as you go up uh, that hierarchy. And so they are wanting to only have, a select few in this Garden of Eden. And again, when you start connecting dots and you understand that those rose, uh, those uh, Georgia Guidestones are thought to be put there by the Rosicrucians, who we talked about earlier, which is the offshoot of the Templars, just the, and, and the group that's going to carry on to set up all these modern secret society organizations, only wants 500, pe- 500 million people. 
so on the earth. That's all that they want. So they will only want a society uh, that is going to have their bloodlines, which they would call in the Rosicrucian secret society, the real bloodline. Some people believe it's the RH bloodline. Uh, they also call it the gene of Isis, which is uh, a significant allegory. And I have a chapter devoted uh, in my book to that. And you might hear it as an allegory in political new world order that I like to call the Nephilim world order uh, that they're trying to bring about called a thousand points of light. That's the spark of the divine that comes out of the immortal angels that went into the original demigods uh, that they want to unite so that they can have the ones selected, the bloodlines, the DNA, uh, the ones who have the spark of the divine, that they can evolve or vibrate into godhood in the new Eden. And they only want enough humans for sacrifice and rituals. So this is not designed for the average human or low-level bloodlines. This is only for the higher pedigree based on the numbers that they would like to have in this new Eden. Okay. It, Gary, um Maybe somewhat related to the information you just pr present. Uh, I have another question that you know I need to have answered. Yeah, and I'm sure some of the other listeners um, would too. Uh, uh, you know, the ET uh, churches, uh, you know, losing a lot of uh, its congregation, and you know, it's kind of moving over to the um, to attend the Masonic Church. And if I say, you know, my mic is one point eight three. Two four inches from my mouth, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, the, the the people in the Masonic Church are going to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, you know, uh, Mark's Masonic and you know, Nightlight is responsible for, you know, like you said, put, putting up the Georgia Guidestone. It's like everything, just whatever, you know, measure whatever number you throw out there. It's, they automatically say it, it, it's Masonic. Um, and I don't consider that I had nothing to do with uh, engineering my headset. Uh, I happened to buy something I thought was you know, good quality for what I could afford to do the shows. Um, and you, know, you also talk about these churches that are, are, are really devoted to theories like evolution, but you know, if you look at when you know the uh, giants started to appear in the the Middle East, they started getting born after leaving. Mount Hermon and uh, you know, 
start populating the Middle East, you know, they eventually move and come over to the North American continent. Uh, they actually become smaller, even though there's a, there, there's a greater food supply. Um, coelacanths haven't changed since the dinosaur era. So evolution is greatly flawed. Now, now there's, you know, like the church of climate change and now the spokesperson for, for that is that 15 year old Swedish girl, uh, is, it seems like she's been coached by adults. So, uh, did, did, did she really have enough life experience to be, uh, that knowledgeable about climate change? Do, do, is she even bringing up um, you know, the end of the ice age? You know, what what caused that? Is that just a natural uh, phenomenon? So you know, we have just all these like gravi- gravitating towards these just philosophies are now um, you know, these churches. Um, and you, know, you do bring up these supernatural religions. So what how are they impacting us today? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. And I want to just uh, touch on um, that people need to be very, very careful um, when they're looking at these numbers and connecting dots that maybe aren't there. So we, we need to be careful with that. Certainly in the uh, supernatural religions, which are the occult religions of the secret knowledge, right? Uh, right. And having the ability to dip into the super knowledge to do things that we, you know, were considered magic or sorcery in the past, right? And I think that was a technology that was uh, significantly greater than what we have today. And we're only now starting to get back close to that level of knowledge that they had, because we can't literally do some of the things that, uh, they did in the past, like building the pyramids and or Machu Picchu and or connecting that to all of these different information that's embedded into those structures that they call sacred geometry with sacred numbers um, that you know align with Earth measurements, uh, uh, the galaxy, the universe, stars, planets, distances, all sorts of different things that it was just way beyond what they had a capability of doing and building those monuments to a level of specification we can't duplicate today. So that's part of their religion. There's no doubt about it. But as you mentioned, we you know we don't want to get into this thing that every time there's a shooting, it's a certain Masonic ritual or something like that because of this floor or whatever. That's yeah. that's just falling into a trap of mis- misinformation. Um, but it's, we also need to understand it's also part of uh, what goes on in, in the secret rituals at the, at the at that level in terms of the sacred knowledge and how they apply that knowledge to honor their pantheon of gods, right? They use that knowledge to build things. And so, you know, it's there and it's, and it's everywhere uh, all around the world. So um, it's, we're not talking about that people can't walk out and, and go visit. Just look at some of that, uh, that even older architecture. It's very Masonic and everything's done with specific ratios and numbers. So now as we move into that, that is part of all of these so many different belief systems that are 
doing two things in preparation for what they want to do. One is they want to lead people away from God. And also, as I mentioned, they want to honor their pantheon of gods. And they want to make sure that God doesn't have credit for anything. So when you get like churches of the ETs, you're discrediting God. If you have an evolution theory, which actually comes out of the Vedic uh, Hinduism concept, and that's where... um, Darwin actually got that from, and, and he was deeply invested in Eastern religions as an evolution of the spirit uh, through many different life ages of uh, improving to higher levels, and he took that to the physical aspect of animals on, and human beings on, on, on the earth. All of this is designed to lead people away from God, but everything, including what's going on with the Green Movement and uh, with Greta that you were talking about, about uh, the uh, environment, if we understand that the religion underneath, what's in behind the curtain, and who's pulling the strings behind the curtain, is that everything about the environment is part of that religion. Everybody knows that there are a significant aspect of whether or not it's the, the Druids or the Greek religion or wherever you go, that they have this significant reflection of Mother Earth and or Lilith as you get out of the Sumerian um, pantheon and, and legends and religion, and you have a pan god and you have these nature gods, and all of it has a significant environmental um, connection to it as uh, nature gods and worship, which is really what the environmental movement is actually doing for the people who are sponsoring them as well as giving them the levers to control people around the world with it because things like the environment or the alien connection with the church of the ets or the new age religion that you know auto, you know automatically connects with eastern religions i'm talking about the new age but the alien aspect the environmental aspect and things like that transcend national borders because you need to go back to understand this concept that I was talking about earlier that the Templars want to to create as their dream this universal religion and universal government. All of that we see the globalists working hard at today who are sponsored by the the bloodlines and, and the secret society organizations to bring this about. And they have, like I said, their web and tentacle is so huge, they are going to get their day of destiny. It may not be when they want it, but they are going to bring it about when they're permitted to do so. And all of this is designed to prepare the world for doing that. So when you look at what uh, Greta is doing, and she's spending a lot of time in Canada right now. She was in Edmonton about a week ago, and I think she's going to be in Vancouver here next week, is all about that brainwashing. And she is actually creating like a religious-like atmosphere and an apocalyptic nature to it. And they're saying, which is, again, even even the UN isn't saying that the world's going to be destroyed in 12 years. But this is the Babel Syndrome. Come together as one people with one language in this new Eden, or we'll destroy ourselves from the face of the earth. And that requires a world government and a world religion, just as Nimrod, who partnered with Hermes that we talked about after the flood, had that universal sway with that spurious type messiah 
aspect that we also talked about with the Babel religion, which is the allegorical definition for Babylon of the end time. So Babylon is the universal religion that controls the initial world government of 10 kings, or as we see is happening, 10 empires or groups of nations or spheres of influence or trading blocks that will send one representative into this council of 10, similar to the ring lords and the round table of King Arthur, uh, which is allegorized in uh, polytheist uh, and Masonic sponsored literature of the last couple thousand years. So I know I said a lot there, but uh, all I'm trying to do is just sort of create the connecting of the dots uh-huh. there uh, that if you dig below the surface and you understand what the agenda is, what the goal is, and what the allegories are, and the history is, you can you can see clear as day what is going on. And the environmental movement, and I don't think anybody's against having a good environment. Um, right. But pollution and the carbon thing are two different things. But the carbon thing is they can actually tax. And the more they can tax is the more they can put people into uh, more of a socialistic sort of scenario, which recreates that Nephilim world order feudal system where you have this powerful elite, no middle class, and everybody's poor. And you see that as it's been manifested in the last uh, 150 years or so through social masonry, which is communism and socialism and Nazism and with Russia and with uh, China. I mean, China was probably considered the most equal country at one point in time. That's because everybody was poor. Everybody had nothing, but you always have that powerful ruling 1% elite no matter what. So again, look for that common denominator from coming either from the left or the right, if it's in support of the 1%, you need to have a critical uh, set of eyes on what's going on there. Uh, uh, Even though we're trying to be uh, balanced in our uh, discussions, I'm I'm sure we're uh, getting a new NSA file on us as we speak, but you know, as, you know, you just mentioned, you know, the one, if, you know, just say uh, environmentalism is you know, really one way to bring about a one world religion. And you just mentioned the Ten Kings. You know, you kind of get into you know, a little bit more of the uh scary uh, Halloweenish kind of aspect and you know the, you know the Bible actually is yeah ha, does have a lot of uh really uh you know pr- frightening passages um you know we don't even have to get get into a lot of this uh, zombie stuff, but it's there. Uh, you know, you know, but related to you know, say the Ten Kings. Um, in, in your chapter forty-six, entitled "The False Prophet," you do um, work in the, the, the. There, there are three characters that. 
appear at the uh, uh, from the the uh, time of Jesus's birth to you know, the end times, and you get the uh, dragon and the uh, beast from the sea and the uh, beast from the earth. Uh, can, can you explain all, all of these uh, different characters from the book of Revelation, how, how they all fit in with the deception and the, and the false prof, emergence of the false prophet? Okay. It's uh, there's a number of characters, and you know people are going to be uh, familiar with most of this as, as as they bring it up. But it's the sort of interconnection and the interplay, and 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 what it all means in terms of what we're seeing today. And I'm not saying we're in the end time today. I think it might be on the horizon, but there are still things to be done and and to be built. So. We're going to have to have that. We're going to have to have Babel, and we're going to have to have that world empire that uh, is going to um, control the world uh, for us to be in the the last seven years, so to speak, or the last few years before the last seven years. So when we have um, the 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 beast of the sea, understand that you've got a, a couple of beasts that are being talked about. One are the beasts empires and the beast empires are defined in uh, the book of Daniel uh, as being the four beasts of Daniel's prophecy of empires which is uh, and I won't spend too much detail on all of it but just quickly summarize so you have Babylon uh, you have uh, Persia that comes next and then you have Greece and then you have Rome um, and then you have uh, the end time empire uh, and you have uh, that makes seven in, in total. And then the beast of Antichrist will be the eighth empire. This is an extension out of that. And so the beast of the sea has seven heads because you have these uh, seven empires. And uh, these beast empires are a hydra. It's a serpent empire. Um, and it is, you know, the empire sponsored by Satan and the seraphim fallen angels or the uh, the serpent gods that we would know around the world that would uh, have that serpent sort of look, you know, gods like the Ogdod gods, uh, the gods of Olympus, uh, the, the Naga gods, the feathered serpent gods, the dragon creator gods of China, and on and on and on. This, and there are other different looking gods as well, but these are the Satan-sponsored ones, and he's the devil who is the serpent and the dragon, and a seraphim with wings is a dragon. So you get some of the imagery that's in there. And so this uh, empire of the end time of 10 kings, which has 10 heads, which is also has 10 toes and 10 horns as you go through the different prophecies linking Daniel and Revelation together, it all means the same thing. It's these 10 leaders of the, of the end time that are part of this last world empire. And in Revelation 17, you have Babylon and a woman riding Babylon. And a woman is a figurative sort of allegory for a polytheist religion, as uh, she has talked about in, in Jeremiah and Isaiah uh, and uh, Zechariah. 
uh, as being this polytheist religion. And this is the religion that is part of the organizational structure, both before the flood, which comes out of the Enochian religion that we talked about, and is a partner to the ruling class, uh, which has its own ruling class of priests and bloodlines. And so you have uh, the royal bloodline, which comes from the Nephilim, and you have, you have the mystical religion. This is what has happened after, after the flood as well with all of these empires. So you have the mystical religion of Egypt. You have the mystical religion of Assyria. You have Babylon, Persia, Greek, and on and on and on. And they all have that pagan polytheist religion, which has its roots in Enochian mysticism that crosses the flood and is connected back to Babel because that's where it gets to start with Hermes and Nimrod. And that's the allegory that's going in. And she rides the, the beast empires of history just as she will be the religion of the end time empire, which is the seventh beast, which is, and this is the image that comes up out of the sea. So you have the universal religion and you have the, the world government represented in these figures. And Antichrist is also called a beast. And uh, he is also called the son of perdition. And he has several allegorical names, all defined within the Bible. But he is considered a beast because he is uh, like a beast, as described in the Bible, because he slanders God um, and he attacks God and he's an adversary of God. And he's also an offspring of these bloodlines that go back to the rebellious angels. So adversarial as in a uh, sort of like a mini Satan, just as he's going to be part of this trinity of the end time with Satan being the, the parent God and him being the son, like Jesus is the son of God. So again, they counterfeit everything as they do this, but it's designed to, again, deceive the people to, to ultimately fight against the God of the Bible. So they have to create a plausible scenario. So this beast is part of that allegory of one who slanders um, God. And he's part of the beast empires and also part of the beast bloodline. So he is the beast, right? He is the Antichrist. And he is the one that is going to negotiate the covenant, the seven-year covenant for the last seven years. And from that, he's going to rise to fame for this world government that's being dominated by this universal religion, which comes first, so that it can bring about this empire that it's going to to ride on a worldwide basis, and is going to take grow extraordinarily rich from this arrangement because it's going to take a transaction off of every electronic transfer that happens in the world. It's going to be just a huge value-added tax that it grows rich from, and. This, uh, this Antichrist beast figure is going to be crowned Antichrist as he rises to power at the midpoint of, of the last seven years. And then he's going, as it talks about in Revelation 17, he's going to destroy Babylon. And he comes to power not only from the fame of the negotiation, but because the ten kings, the ten empires grow so jealous of the universal religion and how wealthy this religion has become uh, that they agree to give their power over to Antichrist to become the dictator of the world and impose his own religion after he destroys Babylon. And we get that destruction in Revelation 17 and in Jeremiah 50 to 51. 
and we know that the timing is is uh, at that point because at, we are we are also told in Revelation and Daniel that he comes to power at the midpoint. So this is at the midpoint or slightly after the midpoint of the last seven years. So these become the players now. False prophet is the one who makes the way for Antichrist, just as Elijah is talked about as making the way for Jesus. So again, you're having this complete sort of duplicate scenario play out before Jesus comes at the uh, at, at at Armageddon. And so, false prophet is going to be the one that is going to take over and lead the Roman Church, who I think is Babylon sits on seven hills, as it's talked about in, in, in Revelation and Babylon in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, uh, in Revelations and in First uh, Peter 5.13. Uh, when you take Babylon back to Greek, uh, not only does it mean Babylon, Babel, Babylon city, but it also is allegorical for Rome as it is used in First Peter 5.13 as that definition because they used Rome as an allegory or as a pressure code as what the Essenes did as well to uh, disguise Rome's name being used because Rome would punish anybody who was thought to be an enemy of Rome. So they used the pressure code or an allegory, and that's how Babylon is defined coming out of Greek in, in the New Testament. So I think Rome is going to be taken over by false prophet, uh, who is going to convert that to be this universal religion, which has been infiltrated uh, through Gnostic sects like, like the uh, uh, Jesuits, like the Benedictine nuns, uh, Benedictine monks, the Cistercians, and on and on and on with all these different monotheist orders, which incidentally goes back to the Essenes, who we talked about earlier, who were the first monastic movement in the West. And that's the organizational structure and part of the religion that comes over with the princes of Jerusalem that is going to intermix with all of the bloodlines and from the priest aspect of it are going to mole inside of Christianity, all in preparation to create the new Babylon, as they call it, uh, inside the original constitution of the Templars uh, for the end time. And so false prophet is going to make the way for Antichrist by allowing him to negotiate this contract that's going to create his fame, but then Antichrist is going to turn on false prophet. So hopefully that I, I, I've, made sense in terms of uh, the timeline and the players so that people can mm-hmm. get a better idea what the players are in the end time from how the Bible looks at it. How the polytheist religions will look at it is, is that this is the actual Messiah. And this is the religion and the, and, and the knowledge of light uh, of the good ones. And that the evil one is the god of the bible who enslaves human in the physical world doesn't give them knowledge and only wants them to worship them and and, and live in poverty and and ignorance and they're going to ask humankind uh to fight god at armageddon to fight for the freedom to live in this in in this separate realm and they're going to create that scenario because as he comes to power that's as I mentioned earlier, that's at the midpoint of the last seven years. Just before the midpoint of the last seven years, uh, Revelation 9 talks about the abyss being open. And that's when 
the impassioned angels and probably the worst of the impassioned, uh, worst of the angels uh, were locked in before the flood and or after the flood if there was a second incursion because that was a violation against the laws of creation to create uh, the giants, which is a hybrid, angelic, human hybrid. And they were sent into the abyss to wait the end time and their judgment uh, for those sins. And those are the things that caused the original apocalypse, which was the flood, so the apocalypse of water, whereas the end time will be the apocalypse of fire. So they're let out just before the midpoint of the last seven years. And at the end of Revelation 9, you have this 200 million man war that everybody talks about as being Armageddon. It's not. This is the war that matches up with Joel 1 and 2, which has the same description of these fabulous beings of this war machine, but not 3 and 4, because Joel 3 and 4 is, is the Armageddon war. So Joel 1 and 2 is the Revelation 9 war, which is the Ezekiel 38 war called the Gog War, understanding that Gog uh, and Magog, as it talks about as some of the leaders of this war, uh, are the names of the offspring of Iapetus, who were giants. So again, I don't think that that Gog and Magog relationship is, is there without meaning. And we know that the sons of Japheth uh, include Gog and Magog, who settled in Scythia, where Polytheist uh, religions and legends suggest that the giants escaped after the flood out of Tartarus or the abyss out of Scythia, and that they would have intermarried with the offspring there. That's kind of their accounting of, of, of why that, uh, of the connection of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38. But this is the same war. This is going to look like Armageddon because it's so horrible, it couldn't be worse. How could you have an army greater than 200 million? And this is the war that antichrist will use as the last part of his credentials to, of being messiah that he will bring peace and actually will take credit for destroying the gog magog alliance that is situated outside of jerusalem uh, and is utterly destroyed and he'll take credit for that and then go into jerusalem and israel later and be crowned Messiah in the temple, which is called the abomination, which is at the midpoint of the last seven years. Okay. Related to all this uh, deception that you just uh, mentioned, you know, there's. Um, a passage in Ephesians about uh, the, you know, like a government of the air, and uh, you know, Barbara and I did talk about that you know, prior to the show. Yeah, you know, she she's heard that it, you know that you know, could be uh, it, it, it interpreted as uh, you know the influence of radio and. TV over the airwaves. You know, you know, the Vatican has a radio station. That, you know, um, probably after tonight's show, uh, we definitely won't be asked to air Nightlight on on that station. But um, you know, 
I, th- I think each time Barbara and I do a show, I we have, go into it with good intentions. Um, yeah, we do our best. You know, sure, make mistakes. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we don't haven't read the most uh, up to date, you know, multi points of view. You know, you know, we we try to get people to think. I don't, I don't think that's all that bad. Uh, but you know, you know. It's, yeah, you know, what do you think about this new way where you know we just uh, sit in our living rooms and our offices, just uh, talk with international guests in our pajamas late at night and d- discuss stuff like this? Uh, you know, are you know, reusing you know like? The devil's tool to get a good message out. Are we participating in something nefarious? You know, or are we corrupting people? Or you know, are we going to you know go to where the sinners are? Or you know, do do we need to go to our listeners and ask for, for forgiveness? You know, how does yeah this new medium uh, fit in with the good versus evil war? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. And uh, when you're talking about uh, just that uh, verse in Ephesians, you know, it says, you know, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, as is the Ephesians 2.2 that you're talking about. And Prince, in um, that application, it goes back to uh, a Greek word, which is arco, which is uh, meaning, you know, first ruler, reign over, chief leads. And it's talking about uh, the prince and the power of this earth and in, in John 12, you know, that prince is prince of this world is, is Satan or the devil. And so from a Christian perspective, obviously anything that's got to do with the air, um, one needs to be careful with. And what's interesting about air is that would be, you know, like the sky, right? In one interpretation. Um, and, you know, gods like uh, Zeus and, um, you know, Anki would be, you know, considered a Satan equivalent. I actually think He's more up in the parent god level that most people look at the aspects of these uh, sky gods as being um, similar to description of Satan. I, w- I would put him a little higher than that. And, and his lower seven angels, uh, one of them would take on that aspect. But understand that this is rooted in the word archo or archon and archangel, which is part of the seraphim watcher group. Um, as those words are also connected to, and there are good ones and there are evil ones. And that's one of the main things to keep in mind here. But I also want to make sure that I nail one other aspect of the quote that you're talking about. It also says the spirit, and the spirit uh, can mean um, breed, just as, or uh, it can mean a spirit of an individual, 
Uh, it can also mean air as well. And air can also mean, um, as you take that back to, 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 uh, to Greek, uh, it can also mean breathe. So it has a connection to the word spirit that follows after. And I think it might either have a dual meaning or closer to that meaning. But it's the aspect here of that supernatural nature that is still governing the earth that uh, we need to be careful with. And I'm not here to say that technology is bad or knowledge is bad. In fact, it is neither. It is the application of the technology or the science uh, or, the tech, or, or the knowledge in general. And that's why it has that important aspect and distinction in the Garden of Eden of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and therefore how that applied to all the knowledge that happened thereafter that rolled down through Adam and then to Cain and to Seth and through the secret societies and into the Gnostic or the knowledge religions, as they like to call themselves. So it's how you use that knowledge that, that is important. So when you're talking about using these devices that uh, a lot of people think have connections back to the rapid advancement of these technologies that we're having today as something similar that would have happened in the sixth generation before the flood when that knowledge married up with the, the illicit knowledge of the fallen angels or the gods that eventually brought about the apocalypse by water. People look at today that the rapid advancement of our knowledge today that doesn't seem to have any rules or regulations to it uh, and just is moving forward based on its own momentum no matter where it goes um, is being funded by the same beings and presences that still govern this earth until the end time. And that knowledge is accelerating this knowledge to develop these technologies. But in that, there's always a choice of how you're going to use it. So what people like yourselves, Mark, and, and Barbara are doing is, is you're getting information out there uh, from all sorts of different views, and you're letting people assess it, analyze it, and make their own decisions. So the application that you're doing is good, I think. Um, and everybody needs to make a choice in this world, so they should learn as much as they can and, and hopefully make the right choice. I always encourage people to do that. Um, and, and then when you've done, you've made that choice, at least you've made a choice because even if you don't choose, you still made a choice. So no matter what you do, it comes down to that. But what we do see today is, is how uh, this knowledge is being manipulated, this technology is being manipulated through the media, the entertainment is all presenting more and more and more skewed, coming together one point of view that is being used to prepare and brainwash people for the end time. We're not getting fair and balanced reporting. It is all has the same sort of values and belief system, which is the outer end of the inner core belief system that's all sponsoring it. And that's the risk of the technology that is going on today. And I don't know whether I buy into this part of it or not, but a lot of people think that the, uh, the entities, the demons, which are different than the fallen angels, because they're the bodiless spirits of the offspring of the, of the fallen angels, so a lower type of god. That's why they're called demigods, the offspring of the angels, as opposed to the gods, which is the Christian aspect of the angels and who brought this knowledge and, and enforced the feudal system of the demigods 
uh, all throughout history until a recent time in, 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 in the West, which is why they're trying to bring it back under control again. But what's going on here is that what a lot of people believe, believe is that it's these angelic and demonic elements that are sponsoring this knowledge and are able to work within this technology because they're spirit beings. And that's why, you know, uh, demons are looking for humans to possess because if they want to actually interact in the world, they need a body. But again, we have technology being developed that is probably going to be developed so that they can house these demons for the end time, just as how we might get actually Gog involved in the Gog war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, that we talked about earlier. And what's interesting about all of that is that they're using one specific angel that is sponsoring this knowledge, particularly for the technology. And that name is the name Metatron. And I don't know whether any of your guests have spoken to it, but Metatron comes up in the third book of Enoch, which, you know, is, you know, quite a bit different than the first Enoch. It has a lot of similarities, but it talks about Enoch before the flood who transcended himself to become a word-like figure or a Jesus-like figure um, who sits beside God. He transcended to that level through the knowledge. And this is the angel uh, Metatron who became, who was Enoch before he transcended to becoming Metatron, who is sponsoring this knowledge to develop all of this technology and in the, in the advanced technology aspect of it. So whether or not that's true or not, I don't know, but there's a lot of speculation. So I just wanted to connect sort of dots again back to how all of this, if you keep peeling back the onion, you get back to the same sort of sources. Yeah, it's... I I'm just kind of doing some self-reflecting there. You know, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, much time is or when I put together or you know, talk to put together a show, I don't there isn't you know, any intention to uh deceive, you know, you know, we just try to present um I, I don't know wholesome I, I, I can't I can't think of you know the right word at the moment. Uh yeah but, just wholesome information to get people to think. Hopefully, it keeps people on the right path. And, you know, yeah. it's just, but if you, if, if you get ahead of the timetable in terms of how they want to roll things out, and you're talking about things you don't want them talking about before they would want people to know about it, wherever you come from a perspective, then chances are they're going to try and stop that. Okay. Well, I'll put my tinfoil helmet back on. <laughs> but there's, um, yeah, we have you know, about 25 minutes left, unfortunately. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we need to talk a little bit more about some of the. Halloweenish aspects of the Bible, since you know, we are kind of doing a. It is a seasonal topic, but you know, 
here we are again. Uh, I don't think we're really trying to you know, deceive anyone. Uh, even you know, we cover, covered. Uh, you know, have spoken about you know, even the uh, like druid uh, Celtic peoples were you know building the bonfires at this time of the year to want more light as the days got shorter. It's just a you know, human trait. But, um, you know, at the, you know, this time of the year, you know, we're dealing with costumes and, you know, they may reflect who we really want to be. Um, yeah, it can re- reveal disturbing traits. Um, and it's, for example, you get John Wayne Gacy with a smiling clown. Yeah, it's yeah, or, you know, just just really un- unnerving uh, co- costume. <clears throat> and yeah, you know, a- after you know, ha- Halloween. Uh, are people you know going back to uh being unauthentic selves yeah that's a deception um you know we also get you know the passages about you know the wolves and sheep's clothing that's disturbing as as well you know is are these how do do the costumes that appear at this time of the year and do they go back to are they going back to you know more of this deception theme from the bible it, it, it's just it's it, just a really fascinating subject it's, it's kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah i mean it's just like r- ruminating again about you know what we do on on, on this show but i i don't think we're really wolves in sheep's clothing i think we're just sheep uh, all day long. I don't think we're really putting on a show, but it, 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 it that 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 theme does show up in the Bible, and it just kind of does fit in with our little Halloween kind of topic tonight. Yeah, and also uh, there's a there's a verse in the Bible of. Uh, Satan masquerading as an angel of light. So, oh, yeah, um, right, I missed that one. Yeah, <laughs> totally forgot uh, or that disguising one. Disguising himself. Yeah. So there's, and I'm gonna say that uh, there's something to that. Um, and I'll come back to the wolves thing. Uh, and obviously, everything I'll talk about now is masquerading, but it has biblical and worldwide connections here in terms of what happens on on Halloween uh, that is uh, very much what 
my research, is, you know, has 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 dug into, and and very much of what I have in the book, and I'll come back to that. But you know, you have Day of the Dead, which is part of the same Halloween, All Hallows Eve, right? Um, you know, yeah. it's also known as the Dia de los Muertos, and it starts, uh, you know, October 31 to November 2nd, but from uh, the Celtic uh, understanding of it, it actually goes and back into Greek and Roman uh, mythology all the way up to the 11th of November, um, which is Remembrance Day was selected on uh, for the uh, First World War. And then you have the 11th day, 11th hour, and 11th minute for um, the, the, the ceremony to begin, which is, you know, the 30, 30, 33 number, which is a significant number for uh, the polytheist religions. But all of this is this age of when the dead or the demon spirits are coming through the portals. Uh, and into the into this world, and so this has to do with the offspring of the fallen angels, the Nephilim, the giants, um, whose bodies died, and um, their spirits uh, aren't allowed to go to heaven. So they go into uh, into the underworld and the physical world, and uh, have this as one of their most significant days. That's known, you know, in ancient. Apology as 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 uh, Sam Sam Hen, and what's important about all of that and um, is that it's the costumes that people are wearing uh, that are related to this uh, day this this period uh, of the dead and coming through fairy shades or fairy domains or portals or what have you. Um, when they come out, and in, and in the Celtic um, understanding of it, um, these were um, sort of buried dead heroes. So they they also connect them back, and they were afraid of what these spirits were going to do, and that's why they were lighting these bonfires, and then they were doing sacrifices to uh, to sort of ward off these demon spirits, uh, but I'm not going to get into that. That's a, that's a bit of a different uh, um, rabbit hole. If we have time, we can maybe come back to it, but just think about what the most popular costumes that people like to wear at, at, at Halloween, and uh, I'll just go through some of the most popular ones. Okay. Um, you know, like Ghost, that's a spirit, right? Mm-hmm. The Nephilim spirit. Um, vampires. Well, the allegories to the bloodlines that we talked about that go back to the Nephilim are raven and and a dragon, and a vampire is a uh, you know is rooted in Bram Stoker's Dracula, which you know etymologically goes back to the word dragon, and they drink blood just as Nephilim drank blood to to sustain uh, immortality, and they have the fangs of a cobra, which is a serpent, which you see the cobra on with the Nagas, Egyptian imagery with kings, and it's all part of that serpent sort of uh, common history that goes back also with dragon as being the same individual, one with wings, one without, and seraphim 
uh, angels, uh, the rebellious ones at least, that had the fiery serpent faces that rebelled and created these, these Nephilim. And it's the allegory for the bloodlines, the male patriarchal bloodlines of these genealogies I was talking about earlier. And then you have, you know, like fairies. Um, fairies like the Tuatha Danon, which is part of the uh, Tuatha Dunedain, which is part of the Celtic understanding, and uh, the people of the uh, underworld or other world where uh, they went off to and they also come back, um, is part of the same sort of understanding uh, of the Celtic understanding of what comes through these portals at, at Halloween. But fairy, uh, oh, and, and Tuatha Dunedain are the offspring of the fairies that come from other planets, and the shays and the banshees are those demon sort of spirits that are the bodiless spirits of these uh, of these Tuatha Dé Danann. And fairy and owl, as in Lilith, but fairy in this uh, application is the matriarchal bloodlines of the uh, Nephilim bloodlines, and part of the elven bloodline and the Elbigestenian religion, which comes from Elbi which is, has, again, has a whole bunch of connections we don't have time to go into tonight in terms of the Cathar Gnostic religion of the Templars, which was at the inner core. So, again, understand all of these have connections. Superheroes like Batman, like Comatos, is uh, like a uh, Zabalba demigod uh, who looked like a bat. And all of them had sort of that raven-type look um, that uh, went, that lived in the other world and, and uh, were the enemies of, of humans. So, uh, or Superman, who comes from, is the son of, uh, um, I think is the son of, uh, is it Jor-El? And he's called Jor-El. But anyways, he is Superman from the house of El, which is the Hebrew name for an angel or a god. And all of these costumes have um, Nephilim connections, and the Nephilim were the heroes of old, the mighty ones of old. They were uh, the super demigods, the offspring of, uh, of the gods and angels and human females, and demigod was known as the offspring uh, in its definition of the gods and uh, human females. And where it comes together is in some of the English translations in Genesis 6, 4, they actually are called heroes of old, just as heroes were the offspring of the gods as well, uh, labeled as such in Greek mythology. So again, witches are another one. That's a female wizard. Wizard is the male wizard. And the female witch and the wizard are the priests in allegory of the, of the polytheist religions. They're not these evil things that Christians would look at them as, um, and they were the adept priests because they could cast all of this magic, which comes out of uh, the uh, the knowledge that we talked about earlier in the show. And uh, the clown, that's actually uh, out of the, you know, if you look at a clown, it has this pale white face, right? right, right yeah. And that's connected to shamans and jesters and jokers and then in the west they put some decoration on it that's part of the trickster spirit that's when the shamans and the uh the adepts of the priest level or the religious level are either going to be avatared or possessed one demon possessed or avatared by one of these angels and inside the trickster 
uh, clown is this inner spirit providing this this knowledge that they like to tap into. I think for the most part, it's more of a avatar effect from an angel to get the knowledge, but some of them will accept demons, and that is not a symbiotic relationship. And this is also the, the same color that they use in the Day of the Dead uh, in, in Latin America and similar cultures that have the same uh, uh, holiday celebrations with that. So they're showing the same thing, and they're imitating these demon ghost spirits that are coming through the portals. And just as you have the theater masks in China and ancient uh, Greece and Rome, that's to hide that inner spirit, and some of them have that pale look, that's the same allegory. And so uh, the, the court gestures were uh, the jokers, um, and it was their job as this priest class, as the allegory goes, was to humble the kings and keep them in line. So you have this hidden organizational structure in the West with the, with the jester joker, but if they displeased the uh, king in any way, they used to punish these jesters and jokers, and or if they didn't make him laugh as hard as he wanted to make him laugh or to be entertained, they would take a knife and slit their mouths, which is the look of the Joker in the Batman movie. That's where that comes from. You wow. have all sorts of monsters that come uh, that are part of technology, whether it's Frankenstein or things from ancient mythology part of the costumes. You have werewolves, which are uh, shapeshifters. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the, the whole trickster sort of uh, uh, mythology, uh, particularly coming out of um, out of uh, Greece with the werewolf uh, as a shapeshifter that was in uh, Ovid's uh, Metamorphoses, and King Lycaon, Lycaon uh, of Arcadia, who's a Nephilim king, Zeus changes him into a werewolf, and all of his uh, family um, for not uh, doing what Zeus wants them to do. And they start a race of these uh, wolf creatures that, you know, become the werewolves. And some people think is related to the, the dog Nephilim. So again, all of these sort of ancient sort of uh, connections to, um, to uh, the, the polytheist religions and prehistory, just as you've got gods that were known as being trickster uh, trickster gods. So, and Hermes would be one of them. And I won't go through the whole list, but understand there's a whole list of gods that would be classified as trickster gods. And also, uh, there would be a lot of demigods that would be trickster spirits as well. So, that's where that sort of trick or treat comes from, from that trickster aspect. And also, as that connects back to the druids, um, you know. They would go door to door looking for a treat, uh, and uh, the priests would for for this ritual. And if the nobles uh, uh, didn't provide uh, the people, there, there there was going to be trouble. But they were looking for serf, uh, servants to sacrifice uh, and use in the fat to light the lanterns to ward off the spirits. And so that was the treat. So if they didn't get it, they did the trick. And so they grabbed uh, the people of the household and they would, uh, in, 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 in a ritual, uh, 
basically put them through uh, a series of tests. One of them would be the bobbing for apples out of boiling hot water. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're going to be sacrificed, beheaded, and then burnt for fat for the lantern for uh, for the warding off of these uh, demon spirits that were coming through. But I went down another rabbit hole there, sorry. Uh, zombies, which are the you know walking dead, right? Well, yeah. Um, and and uh, so very I mean, that's popular all subject. Very popular subject. So people like to dress dress up uh, as zombies, and this is uh, people. Uh, whose bodies no longer have uh, have the spirit in them, but they're still alive. Um, and again, it's part of that sort of Frankenstein sort of understanding of what they're trying to do to create beings for the demons uh, to inhabit. Um, that's where the root of that goes to. So all of these different costumes, you know, they go back and pirate uh, goes back to the Templars. You know, the skull and crossbones is a Templar uh, icon that goes back to the idea of Jesus not dying on the cross and how the bones would stack up in an ossuary uh, and that they have the proof of uh, that Jesus didn't die on the cross, what they believe, not what I believe. And they put that in the form of a skull and crossbones. And the original pirates were the Templar fleet that sailed away and got away with much of the treasure and the knowledge before the Catholic Church and the, and the King of France could uh, uh, take over and uh, disband the, the, what was left of the Knights Templar. So again, all of this is just interconnected. But I just thought I'd throw out um, a few things there that would mesh with uh, what we we're talking about today in terms of costumes and werewolves and, um, and demons and Nephilim. So it, it seems to all have roots back into prehistory. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Gary, we have, I don't know, Five minutes left. Um, uh, maybe for a uh, real quick, you know, one of your uh, uh, interpretations, uh, and then you can talk about uh, you know, your website, and you know, that should be uh, the. E- uh, e- evening, um, but it, you know, you know, one of those um, biblical stories that you know, gives you kind of the, the Halloween heebie-jeebies type, uh, you know, feels is the um, you know, bones reforming in the Book of Ezekiel. And yeah, it almost seems like uh, the the movie uh, Hellraiser, the first Hellraiser, where the uh, guy murdered in the attic, uh, you know, uh, grows all of his muscles and uh, all the bones get reconnected. It's even today's scary movies. Can trace some of their roots back to um, these uh, bi- biblical stories. Uh, what was the scene there with the uh, um, you know, the the all the bones in the valley that uh, God and the uh, 
uh, person walking with him uh, caused to come back to life. Yeah, so, and a lot of people today, particularly with the, uh, how popular the zombie uh, cult is out there and all the entertainment that's out there, um, look to this as maybe, is that is it talking about zombies? And, uh, uh, and you know, when you first read it, you know, oh, wow, it, you know, maybe they are. But actually, it's, uh, and it says quite clearly in, in Ezekiel 37 that it's, it's a prophecy and it's part of the end time prophecy. But it's the actual, as part of the Holy Covenant, um, and part of the mystery of God that is going to be un, uh, uh, unveiled in the end time with the elect. And this is certainly part of the elect is, is Israel. And this is all of Israel that are going to be judged um, by God uh, in the last half of uh, the last seven years. So after Antichrist comes to power, and it's when... Awakened Israel is going to be exited, and you get the uh, second exodus as you get in, I think, starting at about verse 14 to 16 and forward, and that's where you bring Judah and Israel back together. So awakened Israel will awaken in the end time, uh, and Judah uh, from around the world will be um, rounded up in second exodus to come back to meet Judah, who has fled from Jerusalem, that's talked about uh, at the time of the abomination and in Revelation 12 that we talked about earlier, that they Mm -hmm. flee to the desert. But all of Israel and Judah will be exited from around the world to the wilderness um, to await the end time, as well as all of past Israel coming up, because they're all going to be brought together as one rod and part of the preparation for the bride when Jesus comes back. So Jesus is coming back in the end time for uh, second exodus, for rapture, and for Armageddon. And uh, this is, has everything to do with uh, the, the wedding uh, of the bride because Israel has to be prepared, the church has to be prepared, and uh, Israel includes the lost tribes. And uh, also the reconciliation of all the people that lived uh beforehand have to be reconciled for this so this is all part of what's going on in the last three and a half years and in direct opposition to antichrist who is watching this going on um and is uh seemingly unable to prevent it from from taking place okay and yeah with that we're getting pretty close to um being out of time, uh, do, do you want to let the uh, listeners know about your website and anything else you want to plug? And that then we'll have to say, say good evening. Yeah. Yeah. So my website is the Genesis Six Conspiracy dot com. Uh, Six the number six Conspiracy dot com. So if you want to get a hold of me. Uh, ask me a question or maybe get some information on some of the stuff I've talked about today. Get a hold of me through the website. I'll get uh, I'll get back to you. You can also get a signed copy of my book there if you're interested in that or get uh, a good feel for the book because I have a generous excerpt on all 98 chapters. I also have links to barnesandnoble.com, to amazon.com, amazon.ca, and also for the Kindle format. So lots of ways to, to get a hold of the book and, and, and also get a hold of me. Um, I also would like to mention that if you want to come and see me speak, I don't have anything lined up to the end of the year, but in March I'll be doing 
uh, a conference in Atlanta that I'll put out information on as we get closer with uh, Sacred Word Publishing on uh, End Time Mysteries is going to be basically that we're going to be talking about there. And then I've also agreed to be part of Branson in July 8 through 9 at True Legends. So as more details come up, I will put that out as well. Okay. Uh, Barbara, you want to uh, wrap up the evening? I just want to th- thank you, Gary. And uh, Barbara, do you, do you have any closing remarks? Uh, sure do. want to thank everybody for being here tonight, for sharing their time with us. This will be up on YouTube tomorrow, so you can catch it there to re-listen and take further notes. And tune in tomorrow. Uh, we have a, a show in the afternoon, and then next week, of course, will be as exciting as well. Thanks, everybody, and good night.